Greetings and welcome to Beatles Stuffology, where two old friends sit around and talk BS, Beatles stuff, on a track-by-track basis pretty much for the sake of it. My name is JG McQuarrie and I'm here with my co-host Andrew Deacon. Say hi Andrew. Hello, how are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing uh, really well. All the better for listening to a variety of uh, performances of the song we're going to discuss today. Yes, there are quite a wide range of uh, different mm. versions of this song, I think it would be fair to say. Yeah. And this week, we are going to be covering A Taste of Honey. So, um, we might as well start with the Beatles version. So, what do you think of this? Uh, which Beatles version are we going to talk about? Should we? I mean, we're talking about the album, so um, I suppose we'll go with that. Um, yeah, it's um, it's there, as you would say. It's... Um, it, it, I don't know, it feels like that they were trying to get some variety to the album. They thought, well, what don't we have anything of? Hmm, there's a lack of folk ballads. Let's let's put something that sounds a little bit like a folk ballad, which of course is completely different to the uh, the origin of the song, but it's it's kind of how they make it sound, especially those harmonies at the start, which just sort of remind me of, um, you know, the folk singers with their finger in the ear, um, you know, having a little warble on the stage in the early 50s. Yeah, it's a, it's kind of interesting. This is one of the songs which really benefits from listening to other versions of it. We've talked we talk about cover versions quite a lot in the podcast. This is definitely one where you can see the context of other cover versions helps to put this one in focus. And the Beatles version is kind of an outlier. Like when we've been talking about cover versions before, we've either been talking about you know when they've been doing sort of girl groups from the 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 fifties from America, or whatever. But they've kind of, they kind of set the path. So when people end up covering those songs, they can end up covering the Beatles version as much as they do the originals. So it's kind of interesting to have this song where they're kind of slightly ponderous, slightly, well, it's, I mean, it's very folky, but that version isn't really, generally speaking, how the song is brought across by other artists. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. And actually, um, I I take your point. Of course, you know this is um, this song has a completely different background to um, the other cover songs or most of the other cover songs on the album, um, and it has a strange life all of its own anyway, which is um, a little bit odd. If you bear in mind that it was originally written as an instrumental for a Broadway version of uh, a kitchen sink drama. Uh, written by uh, a 19-year-old British playwright. It's kind of like an odd, convoluted route to end up on um, a Beatles album. Uh, It just seems a little bit weird. Um, And it kind of makes me wonder, you know, about what it was about the the play, the very successful play, A Taste of Honey, when it was transferred to to Broadway, that someone thought, hmm, I know what this needs. It's, uh, It's a little bit of incidental music. It just seems yeah that's going to be the thing that's going to really make this stand out and sing for an American audience. And yet it obviously worked because you know here we are talking about it you know more than more than half a century later so it was obviously an effective uh, technique whatever it was. But I think one of the one of the interesting things about doing a project like this that we're doing, where we're taking songs very much out of context and discussing them individually. It, it, that slight recontextualization, I think, kind of, for me at least, has done a taste of honey a little bit of good. When we kicked this project off, I listened to Please Please Me, the album, through a few times. And I've mentioned before that I think side two sags quite badly, which I, I do stand by. Um, and particularly a taste of honey and what we'll be talking about uh, in the next episode as well. There's a place 
really felt like the album was just out of gas. And yet, taking this song out of context and listening to it just as a standalone, I think I did kind of come to appreciate it more than I did when I was listening to it all the way through the album. I'm not going to say that it's a standout or it's like the, the hidden gem of the album. The hidden gem of the album, as we know, is Boys. But it's really... <laughs> It's just, it is, <laughs> MVP. Um, but it's just one of those songs that I just glossed over before, but actually taking it out and having a little moment to listen to it really made me appreciate the qualities of it much more than just sort of skimming by it as we went through it. It's not a brilliant cover version. I do think it's a bit ponderous. I think McCartney is trying to be far too sincere on his vocal. Yeah. There's definitely stuff we'll get into. But it's also... It's okay. Yeah, it's not that bad. So so what is it then that makes it okay, not that bad? I think everybody is clearly trying on it. I think that makes a big difference. There's there's um there's definitely a I'm not a big fan of technical proficiency. It's not something that I really care about one way or the other. If something sounds good, it sounds good. If it sounds bad, it sounds bad. Whether somebody's technically proficient or not really isn't dreadfully interesting to me. But I think that there is a real focus in this song. Um, that you can hear they're really paying attention. And, and, you know, there's only so often we can refer to how quickly the album was recorded and all the rest of it, but this doesn't sound in any way rushed or anything. It's, there's a, uh, I think precision is maybe the word. There's a real precision about the way that it's recorded. Um, and I think particularly as far as the instrumentals are concerned, I think, um, I think Ringo's doing really good brushwork on the drums. Um, there's a little, nice little um, some lead stuff from George going on, which which I think is very effective, and but but kind of understated. Um, if there's if there's anybody who's who's not quite landing it, it it's McCartney's lead vocal. I think it struggles to um, get much weight behind it. But I think musically, there's a lot of kind of precision and detail in the way that it's being played, which I think actually stacks up surprisingly well it, it's never quite enough to become compelling but it's it's still it's got something there yeah so is this the um i mean i was joking about it at the start with the um you know the variety on the album but is this the thing then that um even though you know it may well have been something that they were playing live that is there to go for a broader audience is it or uh, something that perhaps is is knowingly trying to reach beyond the um the Liverpool scene and and to go out to an audience that that isn't just going to be 12 13 14 15 16 year old girls I suppose it's possible I know the uh the Ian McDonald book says that this, this I think almost exactly I think he says something like it, it votes itself onto the album or something because of the Acker Bilk version of being a big success and it's that thing we were talking about in the last episode where you don't really, you know, a thing that you don't really get anymore is so, the same song in the charts being produced by sort of two or three different um, different versions, uh, different artists rather. Um, and so um, the, the Acrobilk version was a hit in early 1963. Um, and that seems to have been part of the motivation to include it on the album. Um, so I think in this case, yes, I think you can quite clearly say um, that this is an attempt to reach an audience that maybe their sort of more standard repertoire wouldn't necessarily connect with because it was a song which was already well known. It had already been a hit. It was already popular. Um, so, yeah, I think in this case, absolutely. The Akabilt one, I must admit, is one that I, um, I haven't listened to. 
Um, I neglected that. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I'm going to be missing a huge amount. You're not missing a huge amount. It sounds like Ackerbilk, <laughs> which is, uh, okay. I don't, you know, I, I, I don't, that sounds harder than I mean it. <laughs> I don't mind a bit of, uh, I don't mind a bit of uh, Mr. Ackerbilk, but it's, uh, it's exactly what you imagine it is, which is it's this song played in a clarinet. And, you know, there's only a, a limited amount of capacity you can get out of that. This, but this strikes me as, as, as a version that is a strum along. You know, it, it sounds quite simple and straightforward in, in the background, almost as though it's got someone playing at a guitar who is just learning a few basic chords. You can just sort of imagine there's not masses going on. Now, I'm not going to say too much that's, that's good about the version that the Hollies, um, that you can find from the Hollies later in the 60s uh, on YouTube. But, you know, they, at least they try something different. There's a uh, rocking guitar solo. Um, you know, it might not sound great, but at least it's something a little bit on the on the different side. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I mean, it's not a massively complicated song. That's that's definitely true. Uh, I think there's half a dozen chords in it or something. Um, and there's got, particularly there's a lot of... Um, a lot of shuddering guitar work, which is, sounds like it's trying hard to kind of drag some kind of sentiment, some kind of emotion um, out of the piece. It's not wholly successful, but it's it's a weird... It seems to exist in... Sort of, this is the Beatles version I'm talking about now, not the Hollies, mm -hmm. but it exists in that kind of weird, slightly liminal space between being successful and unsuccessful at the same time. It's a curious kind of... Um, it's a curious kind of piece in that regard. Like I said, I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that McCartney isn't really managing to get much in the way of sincerity in the vocal, but the, uh, the, the, uh, the instrumentation is, is kind of working well. The sheer range of people, however, that have found a way of doing something with it does yeah. very much suggest that, you know, there's going to be something in the song, you know, sort of above and beyond what the Beatles are able to get out of it. Well, there is. But before we get on to discussing that, say um, kudos to you for introducing liminal space. Um, um, very, <laughs> very, very well done there. Um, Thank you. Yeah, no, that's that remark's particularly appreciated. Okay, so again, before we do get on to uh, um, that as a as an idea, there's the the lyrics, and you know, I I, I struggle. I I have seen a version of of a taste of honey um, about um, eight years ago now, and and I'm struggling to picture how these lyrics. Uh, actually match um, anything to do with the play. Now, I wonder if, again, to link back to the previous mark, it started as a piece of incidental music, presumably then with the title The Taste of Honey, that, that actually then the lyrics perhaps reflect the title rather than the content of the play. Um, so, you know, there's there's kind of a bit of a, um, um, you know, um, a gap between the original intention and, and what we've ended up with. with It's it's kind of a little, I wouldn't say simplistic. I mean, certainly some the idea behind it is more complicated than the sorts of things that the Beatles are writing themselves, you know, which very much is the, you know, love me, do, please, please me, I saw her standing there. At least we've got something about, you know, I dream your kiss, I feel uh, upon the lips again you know and and the whole sort of metaphor of of a, of a taste of honey um you know and 
yours was the kiss that awoke my heart. There lingers still. I mean, this is not phrasing that, that they were using at this stage, although we're only a couple of years away from them writing songs about, you know, flip-flops and hole punches or whatever it is that they end up writing about later in their career, if you see what I mean. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting in, in that respect. But I, I'm going to say um, I, I have two particularly favoured versions of this that um, I'm, I'm hoping we get a little bit of time to discuss. Um, and I'll go with the earlier of the two first. And I'll also go with um, um, the one that made me just sort of punch the air and go, yeah, can't believe it. Let's all rise for Mr. Billy D. Williams. Absolutely. I just was not expecting. Now, I mean, we sort of say this for, for the benefit of those people who aren't able to do any Googling for themselves. Uh, obviously, other search engines are available, but you would be wrong if you used them. Um, but the Billy D. Williams version... Um, you know, to come across his name in relation to, to this and you think, wait a minute, I know that name. Are there two Billy D. Williams? And it turns out that in this case, there aren't. It's a fantastic version. It is really, really is. mournful. You know, it's you know in and out. It's two minutes. It does its job. It's very simple. You know, not dissimilar in some ways to the Beatles one, but much more sort of simple, pared down. And his voice is just fantastic. I think what I, I completely agree with all of that. He does have an amazing voice. It's always really great when you find out these kind of actors have had this weird uh, musical career prior to um, mm. appearing on screen. He does have an amazing um, singing voice. Do you know who Ram John Holder is? Sorry, say it again. Do you know who Ram John Holder is? No. No, uh, he played Pork Pie in Desmond's. Um, oh. Yeah, he used to have a singing career. Sorry, I realize this is slightly up to, off topic, but he used to have a singing career um, back in the day, sort of late 60s. Uh, and he had a stunningly good singing voice. He, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of songs in there, Freedom I'm Ready, and, and a, 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 he recorded like three or four albums. Um, and he just had this amazing voice. It's just, just not something that you expect. Yeah. I kind of like Billy D. Williams is like that as well. You just wouldn't think that that was part of um, his career at any stage. And I like the mournfulness of it. I think it feels like it connects to the original play more than yeah. the Beatles version. Yeah. The Beatles version kind of sounds like it should be sung outside of Greek Taverna. Yeah. Um, it's It's got... And I don't necessarily mean that as a, a demerit. You know, you've talked about uh, a few songs in the album that sound like they should be played by, you know, Spanish waiters. Um, I think, uh, you know, this is very, very much very much continuing our, our uh, European cuisine theme for the album. Um, this is definitely something which should be, you know, sung outside of Greek Taverna, ideally as the sun is going down and, and, and uh, you know, the, the, the moon is rising out from, from the Mediterranean. It's very much about atmosphere, the Beatles version, but the mournfulness that the Billy Dee Williams version brings gives it a whole new dimension and again and a maturity i think as well which mccartney doesn't really manage to capture in his vocal his vocal is competent but that's all it is yeah. but there's a maturity to the way that billy d williams sings that that just makes all the difference in the world see uh, mccartney had obviously experienced grief uh, by this stage of his life with the you know the death of his mother for example so it's obviously yeah. something of an understanding of what it means to 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 live with that kind of pain but I don't think he's got to the point, I don't know, does he ever get to the point where he can express that mournfulness um, through his voice? 
you know, I sort of listen to his voice on this, and I don't think there's a huge distinction between the way he sings this and the way he sings something like um, Michelle. You know, it's it, it's that same sort of thing. Does he ever really do sad? I mean, let maybe, it maybe up at Eleanor Rigby. Eleanor Rigby. Yeah, possibly, but but that's telling a story. You know, that's kind of narrating rather than than emoting. All the emotion I think in Eleanor Rigby comes through the words rather than the performance. Oh, oh, oh! For no one. Yeah, yeah, possibly. I mean, but, I, I but, thinking... but it is, it is the, the, even, even now the fact that we're we're talking about an eight, a seven or eight year career and we've come up with like maybe two examples does kind of make your point. Well, I was thinking here today, of okay, of yeah, um, yeah. Um, tug of war. Tug of war, yeah, yeah. Um, just just to go a long way in the future, <laughs> all the way to about nineteen eighty two. Um, but there you go. I'm I'm not as uh, well versed on uh, on the Wings catalogue um, as you are, so maybe you can <laughs> you can pull something out. But I, let's I, let's let's just gloss over that, shall we? Quickly, quickly move on. <laughs> but you know, it, it it's sort of worth making the point that we get kind of like an intersection of um, of some of their you know their interests. They were interested in. Um, you know, music coming from black artists of of America. I don't know whether or not they heard the Billy D. Williams version or what it was that first drew their attention to it and thought we could do that. But they've got that. But you've also got that that sort of um, connection to you know working class culture, which is very much part of their background. Um, and so, with regards to the subject matter of the original play about representing something different about British culture, you know, sort of going away from that, that sort of stiff upper lip, um, you know, sort of restrained uh, nature of, uh, of Terence Rattigan and moving over to Sheila Delaney and, and something that represents you know, young people. You know, they didn't think that, that Cliff said anything about them and their kind of lives. So they, they wanted to express something um, a little bit different and a little bit more, I suppose, in, from their point of view, real. So there, there, there's connections there just with the, the Billy D. Williams version. Um, but it's fantastic to know that those versions are out there. But as much as it's fantastic to know that those versions are out there, I have to say, Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass, I mean, <laughs> gotta love it. Um, and, and I think you've gotta love it because it is one of those cover versions where apart from one section, if you didn't know that it was called the same thing and had the same songwriters, you wouldn't necessarily know it was the same song. No, it is a very interesting cover <laughs> version. <laughs> yeah. I thoroughly enjoy it, but I'm not really going to tell you that I, I thoroughly enjoy it as an excellent piece of music. I thoroughly it has one of the worst key changes I've ever heard in my life. Oh, about two yeah. thirds of the way through, it's hilarious, and I highly recommend everybody goes and listens to it because it's just it's 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 quite staggering. Um, but it's it's got that yeah it's yeah it's it's called to on a brass so even without listening to it you can probably imagine what it sounds well, like and yeah. it really really lives up to that um, that title it's, there it's there is a wonderful there is a wonderful version uh, that you can find on the almighty um, YouTube that is um, um, a live performance from I think about 1965 where they are, um, him and the Tijuana Brass are in, a, obviously it's in a studio and it's, um, you know, you have palm trees and that sort of checkerboard type floor and it's meant to be 
outside around a fountain, that sort of thing, and you've got them standing around and, and he's kind of dressed like he's he's almost like the the villain in a um um in a western you know not sure what's going on there but then you've got i wouldn't say scantily clad ladies because it's obviously tv in in the 1960s but certainly there are some um well let's put it this way they they look like rod stewart's current backing band Okay, I think that tells us all we need to know. If if you've seen any of his performances, or even the uh, the glorious TV advert for his his new album, um, you know, so you've got ladies looking up lovingly at the Tijuana brass, um, and and sort of moving around, swaying a bit to the the wonderful sounds of a taste of honey. Um, it, it's just it's just fabulous. I mean, it's it's just so wrong that it works. Um, yeah, it's. You know, I love it, and actually, I've had that the the opening refrain um, rolling around in my head for for days now, um, which is actually a bit of a relief. It's it's sort of got rid of a couple of the other recent songs uh, that were hanging around. Actually, it's got rid of them so much I can't even remember what they were. But um, don't tell me because I don't want them to come back. That's fine. Um, but. You know, I, I sort of get the feel from from this version. It, it feels like it's also the theme tune to one of those, um, and, and this is really going to fox some of our listeners in in distant countries. But some of those Lou Grade produced um, um, kind of like detective or adventure series from the nineteen seventies that were on um, on British television. It's really got that that wonderful feel. Yeah, which is nothing but a compliment. Um, oh yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's and, and like again, we were sort of alluding to it earlier on in the episode but um the sheer range of people that have managed to cover this song um i mean just Ackerbilk and the beatles that's already a fairly wide that's fairly wise but herb albert tijuana brass i mean okay that 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 pushes us a bit further jackie gleason covered this song and he did it on the one of the most wonderfully named albums I've ever heard in my life. A Taste of Brass for Lovers Only. Yeah. I mean, who wouldn't be drawn in by an album title like that? But it, it's just great. Have it's, you been able to listen to it? Uh, yes. Don't. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm sort of picturing a, um, a William Shatner type performance. If only it was that good. Does he actually sing? I mean that's a generous, uh, generous word for it. But yeah, it, it, I mean it's not, it's not, it's not Shatnerian um, spoken uh, singing. It's it, he does actually sing it. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it's not, you know, great. <laughs> I'm trying to try very hard to find polite things to say about it. Now I've brought up Jackie Gleason. Um, let's just gloss over that and move on to Chet, Chet Atkins because Chet Atkins is actually a genuine musical talent. Okay. Um, but yeah, again, it's it's it's. Um, I don't know. It's just such a weird range of people that get stuck into this this song, and and the whole history of it, like you mentioned, is is such a a weird, random kind of coming together of stuff, which eventually ended up in this song, and the fact that it's being covered by by so many and such strange artists. Um, I don't know. I think it kind of says something rather encouraging about the song. This not every version works. It's a version that was recorded by. Um, the Supremes and the Four Tops. Um, yeah, in 1970 on the album The Magnificent Seven. And it, it, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was a film I was reaching for when I was trying to describe how Herb Albert was dressed in that TV performance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
Good. Well, we've covered that one off nicely. We got there. We got there at the end. Um, it's not. It's not. I mean, considering it's the four tops and the Supremes, you would think it would have some kind of artistic merit, but it doesn't really. It's a song that doesn't quite manage to survive that um, that move to a different style. It, it just something about it just gets swamped out. Um, but the, again, the fact that that the Supremes thought that this was a song that was worth spending time on. Admittedly, by the sounds of things, not very much time, but still, you know, they recorded it, they put it out there. Um, yeah, it's 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 so strange. Well, I'll, I'll give you um, um, a version of this that I prefer to the, the version on Please Please Me. It's by um, a little-known band. Uh, it's a live performance um, called the Beatles. Um, oh, no, it doesn't ring a bell. No, Um um you know, it was in a small club in um, in Hamburg, so probably some German band for all we know. Um, yeah, late in late in '62, so obviously it's one of the Beatles later, if not their last trip out to uh, to Hamburg. So you know, they were a big deal at the time. This is not when they were all staying in some you know piss stained room, um, and you know, so I think they, they might even have had just been two in a room this time. Um, and it's 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 quite interesting because it, it it's a much looser version. McCartney sounds a lot looser as well, as though he almost has some sort of emotion um, in his voice. Um, it's it's a much more kind of like you know honest piece. It's also it's a bit quicker as well, which which really helps once they get going. Yeah. Um, but then you know, that's probably a result of the enormous amount of uppers that they were taking in order to get through the lengthy sets at the time. Yeah, that probably did make a bit of a difference. But you're right, the pacing does make a big difference. I think that I think that's why for all the precision of the of the album version, um, it does come across as a bit ponderous just because it it's a bit lethargic. It, they need to step it up a wee bit. Yeah, see it's the I mean that that's sort of interesting because you said at the start so well it sounds like they're making an effort. But they do sound a bit lethargic, and and the pacing is important because we've talked about versions that are a bit quicker that are better, and also a version that's a lot slower and more mournful that's better. So you know, there's there's something that doesn't quite work about this, which I think is is really interesting. Um, but you know, you know, kudos for for having a go at something different. Um, you know, and. It's it's fine, you know. It, it it's a bit clunky. It kind of works. It kind of doesn't. It gets us on, you know, a, another step closer towards um, twist and shout, I suppose, which is, um, you know, the key thing about it. Yeah, there is one other thing I kind of want to mention when we were talking about the lyric earlier on, um, and I, I'm I'm wondering if this is slightly why it might be a song which appealed to Paul McCartney. There is a kind of romanticism to the lyric it's, it's very much kind of doomed romanticism mm. it's, it's very fatalistic i suppose in its outlook um but mccartney's often drawn to to those forms of of romanticism and it does make me wonder if that's another reason for its kind of popularity around the sort of the turn of the 60s you mentioned oh you know like cliff doesn't speak to us or or, or that <laughs> kind of stuff and you know oh, that's perfectly perfectly fair enough um, but you know this this does suggest a world sort of beyond the Mersey. It does suggest a world beyond the Thames, um, and mm. and it has got a slightly 
swoon. I think that's what I meant earlier on when I was talking about, you know, Greek tavernas. But it does have a slightly um, more romantic kind of lingering feel to it, which, again, it doesn't connect to the play. But it does maybe help to explain why the song has a reach which clearly goes far, far beyond, you know, sort of kitchen sink dramas of the of the late 50s. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a funny thing, really. It's, um, um, I think the play is, I mean, there have been quite a few um, stagings of it in the last 10 years, as I think people uh, perhaps were looking for something a little bit more realistic. And I sort of think it fits in quite neatly with the uh, you know the austerity nature nature of uh, of you know the conservative government since since 2010 um you know to then represent that that underrepresented group but i think it was for for a long time very much a, a forgotten play and and i can remember in in my my previous days as an english teacher my first couple of jobs um, you know, walking and chatting to um, the head of the department and he was taking me through, oh yeah, we've got all these texts in the store cupboard you could use, blah, 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 blah. Oh yeah, and there's, there's um, you know, um, taste of uh, taste of honey. And, you know, and you're expected to kind of nod sagely as though you, you, you knew that play inside out. But I didn't study at school uh, or at university. It, it didn't come up. Um, whether I was just sort of unlucky in that respect or whether it was just a case of, well, that's the way culture had gone, and now it's come back. It's it's very much more, you know, in vogue in recent years as as people are, are rediscovering not just those kind of stories, those different stories, but also trying to explore those sorts of writers other than the the white male um, middle class middle aged playwrights. Says the white middle aged middle class male, um, you know podcaster um no but i i think you do i think you do make a very interesting point there though because i didn't i didn't study um a taste of honey either at school or, or at university either and um you know you and i were at university together so you know our, our our even although we weren't in the same degree course exactly we uh we obviously had um sort of fairly major study english yeah well you studied history and english and i studied english and history so close enough it's, it's a big difference yeah 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 no, yeah yeah 20 whole percent and uh <laughs> Yeah, um, but I didn't. I didn't study it as well, and I think particularly um, for a long period of time, that kind of kitchen sink drama was very out of fashion. It was very um, sort of not in vogue, and I suspect because so much of it is this kind of socialist, uh, sort of social realism rather, um, you know, which kind of particularly sort of in the eighties was was an absolute anathema to the kind of dominant forms of, of culture and popular culture at the time much of this stuff was simply lost it was simply forgotten not just a, a taste of honey but that whole raft like or even like anything like um richard burton was in all that kind of stuff just got completely pushed to one side and i agree i think i think there's uh i think there's a case to be made that sort of the austerity of of the last sort of 10-ish years and, and the kind of a return of interest. I don't think this is entirely unique to Taste of Honey, um, but the return of interest to those kind of plays which do speak to environments which aren't just sort of cosily middle class has led to, yeah, a resurgence of interest in it, which I think is great because so many of these pieces are really genuinely excellent pieces of drama. And and for, for something like 
um, a taste of honey for it to have been so sidelined during um, a, a period of time where you know the dominant cultural narratives particularly in the sort of 80s and, and early 90s were right-wing conservative of course that kind of stuff is going to get um, is going to get pushed to one side and forgotten but equally it's just as uh, interesting that it's a, a, a similar conservative environment but one based on austerity that starts to see those plays um, come back to some kind of um, public attention right on thanks <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely I don't know I don't know if you want to counter argument to that it's fine it just seemed like there was nothing more to say other than yep yeah, no, I don't have anything else to say on this either, but I felt it was an observation worth making. We'll see whether it makes the edit and then we can agree one way or the other. <laughs> I, I have to say, I, I admire our um, our stubbornness. Um, you know, it's particularly impressive um, to, you know, to chuck in the C word again, folks. You know, it's it's context time. We are recording this in, in the first week of December when the entire Beatles world is talking about 1969. And we are firmly talking about 62 early 63 as though nothing else matters and and i think that is brilliant i'm proud of us yeah I and mean, we'll get there eventually yeah 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 exactly exactly the time everybody else has moved on and given up on it oh sure yeah but that's okay that's okay we'll be able to uh, um reassess that particular period on the basis of having watched that particular series of documentaries many 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 times yes we will have some kind of historical context for it okay so i i think you know i i, I do get to to be in two minds about the album um you know in in its totality and and i really do think that that you know i'm with you in a sense that that knowing a bit more about the song and the other versions helps to appreciate this so it's more you know it's above the midway point for me um on the album and, and I, th I think it's one of those that supports some of the really, really good songs that there are without necessarily, you know, joining their ranks. But at least it, it doesn't, you know, drag completely in a way that one or two, you know, others do. P.S. I love you. I'm looking in your direction right now. Yeah, I would agree with all of that. Um, and interestingly, well, I, I say interestingly, it's the least played song on Please Please Me uh, on Spotify. Okay. Which I think is a slight injustice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how random some of that is. It, it's just numbers. I mean, <laughs> that's all I can say about it. But, um, but it's, it's a fact. It's it, Well, yes, it's a fact. Um, but it's not by much. Uh, it's it's uh, this and Chains are the two lowest uh, on the album at time of recording. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to get an email ten years from now with somebody waving a finger going, "Well, actually, I think you'll find." Well, well, at the time of recording, right now, that's what the case is. We are waiting for a late swing in the polls. Yes, yes. Uh, let's uh, speaking of swings, let's 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 uh, swing towards a conclusion and and um, wrap this up, shall we? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, I think at this point it's worth reminding um, that you did want to say a little something for our international listeners. I did, yes. I, I have um, a strange observation, or at least it's, maybe it's not strange, I don't know. A curious, a curiosity, let's say it that way. As you might expect from a podcast, which is an English language podcast, the, the, the countries that this podcast is um, most popular in 
are English-speaking countries, predominantly the US and the UK. Um, but for some reason, we seem to be inexplicably popular in Mexico and Sweden. Now, I am a loss to explain that, neither are our native English-speaking countries, uh, but I think it's incredibly pleasing. So I wanted to say hello to our, 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 our Swedish friends and hello to our Mexican friends and um, thank you for listening and, and spread the word. I was going to do a thing whereby I tried to say thank you very much in Swedish and, 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 uh, and in Mexican Please or Spanish you. rather and uh, I'm not going to because it has, um, you know, it could just go so very horribly wrong. Yeah. So I'm just going to say thank you in, in English and, and we very much appreciate you listening. Great. Uh, that was it. That was all I wanted to say. I, I would say that when you say that we are popular in Mexico and, and, and Sweden, the word popular is doing a lot of work. It, it's that lifting has been never been so heavy. <laughs> <laughs> and I think with that, we can probably wrap it up for this episode. Uh, you can contact us by email, should you care to do so, especially if you live in Sweden and or Mexico. We are Beatlesstuffology at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at Beatles underscore ology and you can find more of my writing at www.jgmacquarie.scot if you're particularly interested in what I think about Get Back which is the thing that everybody's actually talking about this week then I've written a whole thing about it there so you can read my opinions uh, please like, rate and review us on whatever podcast you're using so that more people can find the show Next episode, we get to the second last track on the album. We're almost there, everyone, and it's going to be There's a Place. And of course, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep listening.